Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're at this morning. At the outset of this passage in verse 3, Paul points us to the source of our, ble- of our blessing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He's, he's pointing us to where this blessing comes from and, and where does it come from? It comes from the God who is blessed, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he points us to how those blessings are being communicated to us when he says, who has blessed us how? What does it say? What does it say? In Christ. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So we are being blessed by our God, but how is he communicating those blessings to us? He's communicating those blessings to us in Christ. And not only that, but they are what kind of blessings? What does it say? Spiritual blessings. So they're coming from God. They're being communicated to us in Christ. And they are then applied to us by the Spirit because they are indeed spiritual blessings. All of this is coming to us as an action of the Father, communicated to us in the Son, and applied to us by the Spirit because they are spiritual blessings. Not only that, but Paul then, since verse 3, has been busy unpacking what some of these blessings are that we've really dealt with over the last several weeks. And and three of them, just at the outset, are what? Choosing us before the foundation of the world, making us holy and blameless, and adopting us as sons. And that is in the general sense, sons and daughters. It's not just to the males in the room, but it is to all of God's children, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. This, this is to all of God's people. And all of it has a purpose, right? What is, what is the purpose of all of this? It's a purpose that causes Paul to overflow with adoration, to literally lift off in almost atmospheric proportions in verse 6 in this outburst in what he says, all to the praise of his glorious grace, right? As, As Paul just unpacks these blessings that God has blessed us in Christ by the Spirit, it causes him to do what Brian did at the end of that catechism question. Did you notice hallelujah was not on the screen, right? It was as we read the truth of what God has done for us in Christ, Brian just couldn't help but be like, hallelujah. Why? Because theology, good theology, should lead us into doxology. One of the reasons that we do the catechism, one of the reasons that we're committed to that every week and we're bringing this great and beautiful knowledge of the Word of God to you is not so that you can be puffed up with knowledge, but rather as the truth of the Word of God informs your mind, our prayer is that it would inflame your heart because that's what the knowledge of God's Word is supposed to do. It informs our mind, which inflames our heart. Theology leads us into doxology. What is doxology? It is simply worship of our God. And that's exactly what's happening for Paul in this passage. He cannot help but to burst out and say all to the praise of his glorious grace. And my prayer is that there would be moments in time through the preaching of God's Word, as you study God's Word day in and day out, as you talk about the Word of God, as you talk about God and what He has done for you in Christ with your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you reach out to family members and share the Gospel with them, that it would cause you to burst out into praise and adoration because, church, we serve a great and a mighty God who is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship, and yet we expend worship on so many lesser things. And so I pray that God's word would lead us, would lead us into worship this morning. Amen? So Paul bursts out, it's like into the atmosphere, and then in verse 7 what happens? He kind of comes back down to his anchor, which is Christ, who is our anchor. Amen? 
And he starts again relaying to us the blessings of the Father in the Son and by the Spirit. And so here in verse 7, what does he say? He says, in him who is in him. It is Christ. Well done. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here, he tells us something about what God has done for us and what he has given to us. Not not only given, but how has he given it? What does it say? He uses a very unique word. How, How has he given us this grace? He has lavished it upon us. He's lavished it upon us. It's lavished upon all those who have been adopted as sons. And so as as we start to unpack this, I want to draw your attention to the first four words. Even the kids this morning, look at the first four words of this verse. What does it say? In Him, and what's the next two words? We have. In Him, we have. Last week, Brian taught us how that our adoption as sons gives us a new identity. It also gives us an inheritance and it ushers us into intimacy with God our Father. And we notice that here again in verse 7, Paul keeps hammering away in Him, in Him, in Him. This language that Paul uses over and over again in Him is speaking to that new identity who we have become through the adoption that is in Christ. But then Paul says what? We have. We have. You see, church, in Christ, we have certain unalienable rights as we're so used and accustomed to knowing them, right? We, we, we possess something. In Jesus, we have certain things. In Christ, we possess them. They are, they are ours by birthright, and they cannot be taken away. Paul wants us to understand that this new identity carries with it a certain weight and benefit that cannot be taken away. Think about this. All of the identifications that we make in our lives, we make them either because of the benefits that they afford us or because of the benefits that they have taken away from us. We identify ourselves, we identify each other, we identify other people in society. And when you really boil it down to this identification process, it's because when you have been identified as something, that either grants you something or it takes it away. It either identifies how you have a certain right to something, or it identifies how that certain rights have been taken away from you. Amen? It's true. And all the identifications that we make in our lives, we make them because of the benefits that they might afford us or because of the benefits that they cost us. But all of these earthly identifications can be shaken. They can be changed. They can be stripped away. Or they can be added to. But there is only one identity that can never be shaken. And that is to be called God's child through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, His life, His work, His death and resurrection are meant to become the dominant story by which our lives are shaped. So let's talk about identity. We've been talking a lot about it a lot already. We've we've mentioned it over the last several weeks, but, but what is it? I mean, truly, what is identity? Identity simply is who we believe ourselves to be. I mean, most simply, that's what it is. Who we believe ourselves to be. But 
where does this belief come from? How do, we, how do we come to this conclusion about who we believe ourselves to be? Well, our identity, who we believe ourselves to be, is shaped by the dominant story in our life. You see, we live in story. Every single one of us lives in story because once upon a time we came into this world. Right? We have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, and in our lives, there are uh, climaxes and crescendos, and, and there are peaks and valleys of time in our life where the story is in flux and it's moving all the time. We live in story, and all of us have been shaped by a dominant story. So the question this morning is this. Is the story that most shapes your life and identity... The story of God that is told throughout the Bible? Or is your life being shaped by a, a story that comes from your culture? Or from a dysfunctional background? Or from a stack of lies that makes up the primary narrative of your life? Well, what do I mean by that? Do you wear your decisions successes and failures like a badge or a mugshot denoting who you are to the world? Do you allow the decisions that you've made that have gone right to, to come and you try to put those to the forefront? Or do you allow the decisions that have gone wrong uh, for the rest of the world to point at those and, and allow those to come to the forefront? If you do, which all of us do, then you have, we have, an identity problem. Think about it this way, borrowing this from someone that I care about very deeply. Someone tells us that we are stupid when we're a kid, and we latch on to that, and we believe it. It becomes the dominant story. And every time something goes wrong, we listen to that narrative from so many years ago. We believe the lie that this happened because you're stupid. Or it can go the other way. It's the other edge of the axe head of the law. Because someone can say, oh, you're really smart, you're clever. And you latch onto that. That becomes the dominant story of your life. And now you have this bar that's up in front of you that you are always trying to reach and overachieve because you're smart. And you live life trying to look like you have it all together. But like a duck that sits floating on the surface of the water underneath, you are kicking for everything that you're worth just trying to stay afloat. Because smart has become your identity. But what happens if there's ever anything that you don't know? What happens if you begin to forget? Devastation. Because you've allowed that to become the dominant story of your life instead of the story of God that's written throughout the Bible. Or maybe you're just way more well-adjusted than all the rest of us emotional creatures. You pride yourself in how well-adjusted you are. You look at the rest of us emotional wrecks who just can't get ourselves together, you have an identity problem too. It's just going to take an extreme amount of pain and humbling before you see through your pride. Don't worry. God disciplines those He loves. So when that happens, remember this and look to Him to be your all in all. I mean, we, we could walk through it all, right? I'm powerful. I'm a loser. 
I'm naive. I make bad decisions. I'm high class. I'm, 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 I'm low class. I'm a, I'm a redneck. I, I always choose the wrong guy. I'm, I'm loose. I'm afraid. I can't do it. I can do anything. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm so fearful. I'm rich. I'm, I'm poor. I'm a city person. I'm an urbanite. I'm a city dweller. I, I'm a country bumpkin. I'm e-harmony. Farmers only. Educated, uneducated, employed, unemployed, unemployable, overqualified, underqualified, friendly, unfriendly, extrovert, introvert, likable, hated, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Anarchist. We, we wear all these different labels. We try to identify ourselves in so many different ways or we allow other people and other things to identify us. Do you internalize things that cause you to think about yourself in a certain way that has nothing to do with who God is and what He has done, but rather has everything to do with who you are and what you've done. If the primary focus of your life is on you and what you have done or what you can do or what you are doing, well, then there's a self-idolatry problem going on there. Because where should our focus be? It should be on Him on who He is and what He has done. What should determine who we are, who God is, and what He has done? And then from there, we can begin to know what we ought to do because we're not trying to do to become something, but rather because we have been made something by God, we can begin to do what He has called us to do. Amen? Is your view of life theocentric, meaning centered on God? Or is it anthropocentric, meaning centered on man? Do you care more about what other people think about you than what God thinks? If you do, then church, you have an identity problem. Can I say something? I have an identity problem. So what do we need? Well, if our identity is who we believe ourselves to be and who we believe ourselves to be is shaped by the dominant story of our lives, then what we need is we need a new dominant story. A.W. Tozer said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why? Because what we believe about who God is and what He is like and what He has done ultimately will shape what we believe about ourselves, who we are, and how we believe that life actually works. Paul is hammering away at in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, because He is telling us who we are in Christ. He is showing us our new identity and what we have as a result. These verses in Ephesians 1, 3-14 are unpacking the mystery of the blessings that we have received from God, namely our salvation, and all of it can be summarized in this one word, the namesake of our church family right here this morning. Redemption. In Him we have Redemption through His blood. Why is Paul doing this? Paul is doing this because Paul wants the people of the church in Ephesus to know that the dominant story in their life, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know this morning, that the dominant story in our lives is the story of God's redemption of us in Christ. The story about who God is and what He has done for us and in our place. How does this speak to identity? Well, let's look at the text. If in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of the Father's grace which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, then we have a new identity. If this is true, then we, all who believe, are who? We are the redeemed. If this is true, we have our new identity. What is our new identity? We are the redeemed. So, so what's redemption? 
This is important. I mean, initially, when you think about redemption, you might think freedom. And, and freedom definitely is a result of redemption, but redemption is not freedom. Redemption is deliverance from some evil by payment. That's the key. That's the kicker. It's not just wave your hands, freedom. It's not magic. It is deliverance by payment. The payment of a price. Think about ransom and you'd be more in the right place when you think about redemption. You see, freedom is not free. It's not free. It can only be gained by fight or by price. And in the case of biblical redemption and the salvation of believers in Jesus Christ, this freedom is gained by great price. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. I wanted to jump for joy this morning when we were doing the catechism question because to be perfectly honest with you, I don't every week review what the catechism question is for the Sunday that we're doing it. Like we didn't, we didn't plan to do this today so that it would coincide with the catechism question this morning. But if you noticed, that's exactly what the question was dealing with. And I was like, God, you are so good. I mean, we even had a week a few weeks ago where we really threw off our schedule and what we thought we were going to be preaching. And so here we are, and it coincides. That was all, all God. Or coincidence, you know, maybe God's not... No, God is sovereign <laughs> over all things. There's not a molecule out of place in the existence or the expanse of the universe. Freedom's not free. This is why we say that the grace of God is offered freely, but it itself is not free. You see, it costs the life and the blood of Jesus. Redemption for us is the work of Christ that He was sent to accomplish. This is why Jesus came. He sent to accomplish Redemption, to pay for sins. This is what he does. It's mission critical. So hear me, church. Jesus did not come to simply show a better way to live. But to live perfectly in the place of sinners. Did you catch that? Jesus did not come to simply show a better way to live. He came to live perfectly in the place of sinners. He did not come simply to make redemption possible so that people could wander aimlessly into it. But rather, He came to actually accomplish it. Not just so that people could simply come into it, but rather so that he could rescue them out of the bondage of sin and death. You see, Paul understood the language of redemption. And he also understood how that redemption could shape identity because Paul was an Israelite, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, the Israelites drew their identity from a dominant story which was the story of God choosing them out of all the peoples of the earth to be His people. A family formed by His word and by His choosing. So let's review that story. Kids, if you listen, you'll hear us walk through many of the different Bible stories that maybe your parents have taught you already. If not, then parents get busy. All right. So what does God do? God brings His family, this people that He chose, and He brought them through Abraham out of Ur and into Canaan to give them the land that He would show them. But then God does something. He allows one of their number, a young man named Joseph, 
to be sold into slavery by his brothers. Everything looks bleak, but then God uses what was intended for evil for good by causing this one member of the family to rise to a place of prominence in Egypt so that he could provide for his whole family because there had been a famine. And this family is growing rapidly and they all move to Egypt so that they can be fed by the way that God has used Joseph to provide. And as they are there, their brother who is second only to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, begins to provide for them and they grow and they begin to multiply. But the Bible says that a new Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph. And he looked out at this sea of people called the family of Israel. And they weren't so much a family anymore. They were more like a nation. And he began to be afraid of them because they were so many. And so he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them my slaves. And suddenly God's people are brought into slavery. And they toiled for over 200 years. 200 years they toiled as slaves in Egypt, building things to the glory of false gods. We know the end of the story, right? What happens? Moses, God, sends a redeemer. And that's how the Old Testament phrases it. God sends someone. He didn't leave his people in Egypt. He did something. What did he do? The biblical word that is used over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament to describe what God did in rescuing his people out of slavery and out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. What is the biblical word that's used? It's redemption. Over and over and over again. You are the people whom I have redeemed, God said. I brought you out of Egypt and into the land that I promised you. He redeemed them. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament because that story of redemption from Egypt, bringing them into the promised land, is what shaped the identity of every Jewish person, of every Hebrew, every Israelite. It still does. Remember how that their lives revolved around Passover. Why? Because that was the dominant story of their life. Every year reminding themselves how that God had rescued and redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And God had done it, sparing and saving them from their overlords. For Paul, that was a powerful and dominant story. So powerful and so dominant that it caused him to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Because when these Christians came along, he saw their identification with Christ as an assault on his identification as a Jew. But something happened for Paul, didn't it? On a road to Damascus, Jesus showed up, knocked him off his horse. And what did Jesus do for Paul? He gave him a new dominant story a new story to shape his life, a new narrative that was even more meaningful to him than the redemption that God brought for the Jews through Moses by plague. Paul found the redemption that God has brought for people from every tribe and nation and tongue through his own son, a true and better Moses, Jesus Christ. And he did not accomplish this redemption by plague, but rather... How did he accomplish this redemption? Look at the text. In him we have redemption through his blood. Through the very blood of his son. And this reshaped Paul's existence. He went from persecuting the church of Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. The Bible says in all the world, in him we have redemption through his blood. This truth should alter and change and reshape our lives. It should affect our decisions, big and small. It should cause us to live from a new starting point, transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Church, we should begin to live from our identity in Christ. 
So I want to tell you another story equally true. Once upon a time, all was well with the world. Everything was beautiful and in harmony. Creation was singing to the glory of God. God Himself said that it was good and that the man that He had created in His own image was very good. Men walked with God in serene relationship and in benevolent, unmerited favor and grace with His sovereign Creator. And then something happened. A false teacher crept into the garden. The damnable dragon who would be cursed to dragging his insatiable belly in the dust that God's pinnacle creation was formed from, forever licking and tasting without ever becoming what he so desired to become, like God. But we listened to his preaching. We heeded the words of a fork-tongue liar. We listened as he twisted truth and sank his fangs into our hearts that wanted glory for ourselves rather than the glorious one himself. We listened and believed and we were changed. Not for the better, but for the worse. We stole what was not ours to eat. We took and ate. We fed. We fed on our self-shaped desires in our hearts by faith believing that we could be like God, completely forgetting that He had already placed His imprint upon us as He formed us in His image. We traded truth for a lie. We suppressed it in unrighteousness and worshipped ourselves, the created, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And there was a penalty a fall from life to death. We had a fall that Humpty Dumpty could not comprehend. We fell not only from grace, but from true existence. We entered the time between times, the land of the living and the walking dead. Walking and breathing and eating, but never being satisfied and never being fulfilled. Seeking for that glorified state that we once enjoyed without effort. Only to be constantly degenerating back into the dust from whence we came. The entire universe was affected by the shockwaves of our rebellion. We had a familial Debt against our Creator entered into by our federal head, a representative, our first father, Adam. And every generation since that time has been indebted to God and enslaved by the very sin that stole us from our Creator and made us the possession of Satan, that dragon. Rebels by nature and choice stained and dirty, unworthy to petition the Creator for anything and enjoying only that with which every man is blessed, ultimately turning every good gift of God into an end in itself, again, worshiping the created rather than the Creator. Food and drink and sex. We wallowed in our sin, far from God, at enmity with Him, seemingly unable to earn His attention, much less His affection, we became shaped by the dominant story of our lives. Slaves. Slaves to sin. And payment had to be made. But we were incapable of paying it. And then like a song, In Genesis chapter 3, a foretaste of a glorious message of good news was whispered by God to his people. What did he say? It was a promise, a new narrative, a greater narrative than Adam blew it. It was a message of hope, a seed from the woman. A male child, 
would crush the head of that evil preacher, crush the serpent forever, and the promise was covenanted with blood. Our exposed parents were covered with skins from an animal that God killed. Blood was spilled to cover sin because still God loved. His attention never diverted. His affection never waned. In love, God acted on behalf of those whom He had chosen. The sacrifice of the animal. A sign pointing to the final covering, a final payment, a once-for-all payment, great and perfect enough to redeem not just the past and the present, but also the future. The seed, the seed was Jesus. The payment was His death on the cross. And the result, a new identity for rebel sinners like you and me. In Jesus, the rebels become the redeemed. That is meant to be the dominant story of our lives. Colossians 1, 15 through 22 says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, (laughs) whether thrones, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and they were created for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means he's supposed to come first. That means everything's supposed to come from him. That means when Paul says that we are in him, that our life itself is supposed to spring from him, that he is the fountainhead, that he is the one, the life spring. He is the, the spring of living water from which we are supposed to drink And be restored every day. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. How? Paul says in verse 22. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he says this. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now. He has now. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's reconciling all things. We have redemption through his blood. That's what our text this morning said. There's a principle at work here. A principle that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says to His people, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for for you on the altar to make atonement. Everyone say atonement. To make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. One of the most easiest ways to understand the word atonement is just to break it down. Atonement becomes at-one-ment. At-one-ment. It means to bring things that are out of oneness or unity back into oneness or unity. Shalom, peace, or as Paul says in the passage that we just read, reconciliation. You see, the blood of Jesus accomplishes the work of making peace by bringing us back into oneness with God in Christ. Then the Spirit who applies the blood to us, making atonement for our sin. And not just our past sins, not just our present sins, but also our future sins. Why? As the writer in Hebrews states it in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. 
of sin. There had to be blood. Because there had to be atonement. A law of God was broken. From this tree you shall not eat. Therefore there had to be a penalty. Lifeblood. The problem is that no mere man, no descendant from the loins of Adam tainted by sin could make a sacrifice by blood that was worthy to be accepted by God. There had to be a substitute. As Adam, as our representative father, had sinned for all of us, we needed a new representative that could make atonement for us, a substitute. So we've used three words here in the last couple minutes that I want you to grab a hold of. There's been a penalty. Everyone say penalty. We need a substitute. Say substitute. To make atonement. Say atonement. A payment for sin. Someone who can pay it. And what that payment results in. Bringing us back into oneness and unity with God. There's a theological term that helps us understand what we are talking about. And I want to teach it to you because what I'm about to share, you, share with you is what assures us of what we have. What were the first four words of our text this morning? In Him we have. And so what I'm going to share with you is not just big words. I could care less about the big words. You may think I differently. Okay, I do care about big words, all right? I really don't care if all of you care about big words. But there are some words that I believe are important for you to learn. And this is one phrase I want you to learn. Because it is what assures us of what we have rather than something we hope for. There's a difference there. There's a difference there. So the word combines those three words, penalty, substitute, and atonement together, and what you get is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now the word penal we've heard before, think penal code, right? It has to do with the law. There is a law that has been broken. There's a penalty. So when we say penal substitutionary atonement, what we're talking about is there is a penalty that has been incurred, that needs to be paid. Substitutionary means that we need someone else who can pay that penalty. And the atonement is the result of that penalty being paid. Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. We cannot get away from this. It, it was not something that happened and then God attributed things to it. It was something that God sent Jesus to do because there was a legal infraction that carried with it a specific price that needed to be paid in order for that infraction to be wiped away. Do you understand? Are you with me? Thank you. The Father, as we learned in our question this morning, imputes or places the guilt of our sins on Christ, and He bore the penalty as our substitute. So Christ steps into our place, right? He steps into our place as our substitute, and the penalty of our sin is placed on Him. The punishment that we deserve. This is why Jesus from the cross says, to tell us that, paid in full. It's finished. Not only that, but then the innocence and the righteousness that belong to Jesus is imputed or placed upon us who believe. And so we're not simply forgiven, which would mean the slate is wiped clean and we start from ground zero but rather all that Christ had earned in His perfection, in His righteousness, in His holiness is attributed to us. We don't start at zero. We start 
with an infinite amount of worth in our account. And it can never, ever, ever, ever run out. The blood of Jesus never runs out. It never devalues. Never. Never, ever, 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 ever. Never. Do you hear me? It never runs out. Praise God. <laughs> it never runs out. Isaiah 53, this messianic prophecy speaks of this atonement. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Amen. We sang it this morning. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's verse 6. That's good. Verse 12 is even better. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The blood makes atonement by the life. Christian redemption is the work of atonement accomplished by Jesus Christ through the blood of His cross and the substitutionary death He died for us and in our place, those whom He predestined to be adopted as sons. So that's the theology. So how does this lead us into doxology? Hopefully it already is. But let's connect the dots. What does this penal substitutionary atonement mean for us? Number one, it means the penalty is extinguished. I tried to find a better word than that, but it's the perfect word. Because it was here, and now it's gone. I don't know another word for that. It was here, and now it's gone. It's extinguished. It has been done away with through payment. Remember, redemption is deliverance by payment. It's not just deliverance. It's not just payment. It's deliverance by payment. This is why the previous verses are so important for us. Because, and follow me here, if sin's penalty has been paid for, then it is not possible for God to forgive kind of in Christ's atonement, and then yet punish us for sin. That is not possible if God is truly God, if He's truly good, and He's truly just. If that is true, if Christ kind of paid for sin, and then we still have to pay for sin, then God, we should not rightly be called God. He is not good and he is not just. That would be a forgiveness that is unworthy of God, and it really couldn't even be called forgiveness at all. It'd be like, I kind of... I don't know, there's no word for it. It's ridiculous, is what it is. You see, this is why, this is what caused David, this understanding that once God forgives, he forgets. That once he is forgiven, it's done. Is what caused David to sing in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Because once God is forgiven, he, he's not going back on that forgiveness. Spurgeon, when preaching through this very text, remarked, that we are certain that the everlasting punishment of sin declared in Scripture will never happen to the man who is forgiven. When transgression is removed, the soul stands clear at the bar of God, and there can be no further penalty. I absolve thee, says the judge. And that carries with it weight, so that a man that is forgiven is cleared of the punishment which we, he must otherwise have borne. 
So if the penalty has been removed, the question we must answer is, for whom has it been removed? It's the guardrail of the previous verses that shows us Christ's definite work of redemption and atonement that was accomplished by Christ on behalf of those that the Father had predestined before the foundation of the world, those whom he predestined as sons. If those verses, if we want to cut those verses out and reject them, but keep the atonement of Christ, then what we do is we open ourselves up and fall into the heresies of open theism and universalism. Because if the penalty of sin has been paid, then it must then be applied to those for whom it has been paid. Because redemption is deliverance by payment. It's not just payment. It is deliverance by payment. It has either been accomplished or it has not. There's, there's no other way to look at that. If that were the case, then we would not run through the streets singing, repent and believe. We would walk through the streets saying, don't worry. What's the point of repent and believe if it's all been paid for? It doesn't matter anymore. But what's the call of the gospel? Repent and believe. Why? Because those who believe are those whom God has called as his own, whom he has predestined to be adopted as sons. And Jesus said he will not fail to get even one of those whom the Father has called and drawn to him. This redemption and work of atonement is not some cosmic afterthought or happy byproduct of something did. Jesus did. It was the plan. It was mission critical. Pay the price for those whom God had chosen. And it is all according to God's definite plan for knowledge and love. So I'll repeat what I said earlier. Jesus did not come to simply show a better way to live. He came to live perfectly in the place of sinners. He did not come to simply make redemption possible so that people could wander aimlessly into it, but rather he came to actually accomplish it. Not just to accomplish it, but to pay the price that was required, not so that people could come into it, but so that he could rescue them out of the bondage of sin and death. So the penalty is extinguished. Number two, favor is restored. At one atonement, brought back into unity, oneness, shalom, reconciliation. This point echoes what Brian taught us last week about intimacy. That Christ's redemption ushers us into God's presence, not as rebels, but as adopted sons and daughters whose father delights in them. Before we come to Christ, we have an idea of the punishment that awaits us. How many people believe that if they just walked through these doors, that the roof would cave in on them? How many people don't pray because they know that the way they are living doesn't line up with how God says you should live? And so they stand back and they say, I can't pray. Because inherently we know that we are creatures of wrath apart from the atonement of Christ. But if we are in Christ, then we have been pardoned. In Him we have. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Amen. If in Christ, then we are justified before God so that we can enter into right relationship with Him. We can be at one with our Creator by our relationship to His Son. Redemption through blood carries with it what it goes on to say in the text. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Not only that, but how is this forgiveness bestowed? According to the riches of His grace. And not only that, He hasn't just given it to us like someone gives a gift at a work Christmas party white elephant exchange. 
Here you go. No, what does it say? It says He lavishes it upon us. He lavishes it upon us as a father who delights in his kids, who smothers his kids with more grace than they could ever use up in a lifetime. And even then, not recklessly, what does it say? With all wisdom and insight. And so it's given with reckless abandonment, but it's not reckless. Do you follow that? Do you understand how those can simultaneously coexist? That God is with reckless abandon just shoveling grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon His kids. And yet it is done with all wisdom and insight. Meaning it's given with reckless abandon, but it, it is not itself reckless. Praise God that He is a good Father who knows what is best for His children. So the penalty's been extinguished. Favor has been restored. So what should that bring to our heart? It should bring to our hearts a removal of fear. Fear is done away with. If favor is restored, then fear is driven out. The love of God visits us in the form of Christ on the tree, hanging there on our behalf and paying the price for our adoption. And the more that we are aware of this reality and the permanence of our adoption, the less fearful we will become. As God's love for us as His children overcomes our fears and drives them away, there's only one thing that can describe that feeling. Joy. So be not afraid. But rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The arrival of joy. Think about this quickly and we'll close. Darkness, hunger, cold, thirst, sorrow, loneliness. We know the counterparts of these things because of the mere existence of these others. We relish in the light, in food, in warmth, in joy, in companionship, and the quenching of our thirst because we know what the alternative is like, at least in some relative capacity. The more we have experienced the vileness that this world has to offer, the more we will relish the counterparts. Speak to someone or hear the stories of those who have experienced hunger and they will tell you how much they relish being fed and feeding others. Speak to someone who has lived in unspeakable sorrow and then been brought into joy and you will find a person who never desires to go back to that place except to rescue someone out of it. The removal of sin through the definite atonement and redemption of Christ should be infinitely more impactful for us. But here's the truth. Those who have been forgiven much will love much. For those who realize just how far Jesus had to plumb the depths of our depravity to get to us, it will cause them all the more to worship Him as Savior. When you understand the depths of the total depravity from which Christ has lifted you, you, a rebel, a sinner, you, a blasphemer, an adulterer, you, a child of wrath, destined for destruction apart from intervention. And oh, what an intervention. The God of the universe stepping into time and flesh and sacrificing Himself for you. You who deserves nothing, who have received everything, if only you believe this should bring great joy and adoration. To rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. To praise His glorious grace and to motivate us for holiness and righteousness, living not to earn, but because we have received love already. This is the joy that removes apathy. It removes fear and causes us 
to march onward on behalf of the kingdom. I really appreciate that, but can you please stop? Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not trying to be rude. I do not want your emotions to be stirred right now. I want your affections to burn because of the truth of the Word of God this morning. Because I'm burdened this morning that some of you know what I'm talking about and some of you do not. Some of you have experienced the redemption that is through His blood and some of you have not. And this morning, I don't, I don't want to have verses of come as you are and stir your emotions and get you all worked up so that you have some kind of emotional experience and you replace the redemption that is in Christ through His blood with an emotional experience. Because you can never know the sweetness of mercy until you have tasted the bitterness of sin. And you will never know how grace can heal until you have felt how sin can wound. There is no making you alive until you are killed. There is no filling you until you are empty. But this is the good news this morning. The Lord filleth the hungry. The Lord fills the hungry and He fills them with good things. But hear this, the rich He sends away empty. The forgiveness of sin is not just a doctrine of the creed, it is a promise of God's word. We say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But it's not a formula. It's meant to be a realized fact. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Removal of the penalty. Removal of God's offense against us. The clearing away of the turbid waters within the heart and the creation of joy and peace through perfect reconciliation to God. You see, grace does not say that sin is okay. It says that the penalty of sin has been paid for. Grace does not make sin safe. It makes the believing sinner safe from the wrath of God. Grace does not promote sin. It promotes the kindness and mercy of God whereby rebel sinners are called to repentance and turned into saints for God's glory alone. Church, sin will destroy you. Yes, even you, the Christian, sin will destroy you, your family, your life here on earth, it will destroy you. And if you are in Christ, no, it will not damn you to hell. But you will suffer the consequences of sin in this life if you carry on in unrepentance. It is dangerous and not to be trifled with. Hebrews chapter 10 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You know the verse that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We like to quote that against people who have wronged us, and we say, vengeance is the Lord's, He will repay. Do you know what it's talking about? It's talking about people who have received the Word of God and carry on sinning. That's the vengeance it's talking about. The Lord will judge His people, it says. And then it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because Jesus has paid the everlasting punishment. If you are living in open and rebellious sin, stop it and repent. Believe the gospel that you do not have to earn for yourself anything. 
Because at the root of every sin is the sin of unbelief. Not believing that what Jesus did and who he is for you and in your place is enough. And so you are reaching and grasping and trying to hang on to things for yourself rather than resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. So if you are living in open and rebellious sin this morning, I call you. I call you as your pastor. I call you as an elder of the church of Jesus Christ. I call you to stop it. I call you to repent. Tell someone. Bring it into the light. Stop running from God. Stop trying to hide. You cannot hide. And run back to Him. Run to your Savior. And let His kindness lead you. And know today that in Christ you have redemption through His blood. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. And then he he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so the writer goes on to say, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Amen? In Christ, God does not say it's okay. He says, you're forgiven. And there's a big, big difference. Father, I thank you this morning that you sent your son to redeem a particular people through particular blood spilled on a particular day by a particular man on a particular tree on a particular hill to accomplish a definite and particular atonement. Jesus did it on the cross, on our redemption hill. He said, it is finished, paid in full. God, let this be the drama. Let this be the story that defines our lives. Help us by your spirit to understand that this morning in him we have redemption. We have a new identity. Because Jesus paid the price. We were rebels, but now we are the redeemed. Adopted sons and daughters who have been welcomed to the table that the Father has prepared. God, as we come today to receive from your table, as we come and take and eat this time by invitation, Father, let us be reminded of the dominant story in our lives the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ for us and on our behalf. And let us take and eat and feed on Christ in our hearts by faith this morning. We praise you for the redemption that is through Christ's blood, the gracious forgiveness of sin according to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. To God be the glory. Thank great things he has done. Amen. Would you come this morning as we sing?